Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. It's my privilege today to talk with you and be part of this series of studies in Hebrews chapter 11. And today we're going to be looking at a man named Enoch, and the title of this morning's message is Enoch's Escape from an Empty Life. Enoch's Escape from Empty Life. There are only three passages in the Scripture that speak of Enoch. Uh, the first one is in Genesis. We're going to look at the other one in Hebrews. That's the heart of our passage, uh, Hebrews 11 today. There's another one in Jude. We're not going to get to the one in Jude. We'd need another service for that one. <laughs> it's, it talks about what he used to preach and that sort of thing. But we're just going to look at Enoch today in particular. And I need to say by way of just sort of setting the table that the entire book of Hebrews, I believe, is sometimes mis, misunderstood because we tend to focus on what the Hebrews uh, text says about Jesus. And I read these thematic outlines, and they'll talk about Hebrews as is talking about the supremacy of Christ, and it does. But every scripture, every, every book in the Bible, we can talk about Jesus. You know that? That's the truth. The writer of Hebrews has a specific purpose in mind, and if we had time, I could make the case, but his purpose is to write a group of Christians who are experiencing the first moments of persecution. Some of them have had their stuff their things confiscated, but they've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, he, the writer says. And so they're experiencing some very real world tests of their faith. This is pretty obvious. And when you, and when you, and when you read the, the whole book of Hebrews, he is saying to these Christians, don't stop trusting God. Endure. Keep going forward with God. Don't shrink back. If you were to look at Hebrews 11, which talks about these wonderful men and women who trusted God and by faith did this and by faith did that. If you look at the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 12, you get the same sense. He's saying at the end of chapter 10, don't shrink back because look at these people by faith, by faith, by faith. And then chapter 12, because we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us press on. Let us cast aside every weight. Let us keep trusting God also. And so Enoch is one of these individuals. And, and, and so I want to begin in Genesis 5 with this story of Enoch because this is where his story begins. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 21. Now, if you're a person that reads your Bible through on a regular basis, then you know that Genesis 5 is one of those places you tend to skim because it says so-and-so lived X number of years and had a kid. And then he lived so many more years and had more kids, sons and daughters, and then he died. So-and-so lived so many years and had a kid. And then he lived so many more years and had sons and daughters, and he died. And that's what you read over and over again until you come to Enoch. He's the seventh from Adam. And listen to his story. Genesis 5, verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. 
and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So look at that carefully. His story starts out the first 65 years of his life like everybody else's story. He lived 65 years, and we're thinking, here we go again. And he has a son. Now, that is remarkable. I'm 61. Don't think I want to start this over again. But things were different then. People lived longer. So, 65 years old, he's just like everybody else. His story looks like it's going to read just like everybody else's narrative. But then he has a son, and the Bible drives it home, makes it very, very clear that Enoch is different. Enoch steps away from the life that everybody else was living. He steps out of the same old, same old monotony. He steps away from a life that seems pretty empty. They don't have much to say about everybody else. But Enoch is remarkable. So we look at this. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. He didn't just have more kids. He did. But he walked with God. Everybody else lived and died, lived and died, had kids, lived and died, lived and died, had kids, lived and died, lived and died. But then he has a son, and we don't know the whole story. This is one of those things you're going to have to ask him if you get to see him. And say, what, what happened? But there was a radical turning in his life, a defining moment. We don't know the details, but, but as a consequence of that defining moment in his life when he became a dad, he walked with God the rest of his life. And the other thing we see here is that God took him. He didn't die like other people died. So not only did they live and die, live and die, live and die, he lived, walked with God, and then disappeared. God took him away. He didn't die like everybody else. And so the question that forms in your mind, or I hope forms in your mind, is this. How did he escape the empty life? How did he discover that way of life that enabled him to walk with God, and how did he do that for 300 years? Now, before we get into Hebrews 11, I want to call your attention to Ephesians chapter 2, because I think it really drives this point home, how, how unique Enoch is, and truthfully, how unique our lives are supposed to be. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. No one wants an empty life, right? Now, I asked this first service, and I'll tell you how they voted, but who wants an empty life? Anybody here? Empty life? Whew. I always worry about that. I'm thinking, yeah, I want an empty life. I don't know who that would be. So I'm glad. Nobody here wants an empty life. And you know, that is the way of our culture. We live in a whole world of people that don't want an empty life. Do you know that the self-help industry, the coaching industry, the self-help industry is an $11 billion a year business? Sometimes I wonder about this motivational speaking thing. Maybe I ought to do that because these people are racking it up. $11 billion a year. By 2025, it's estimated it's going to be $15 billion a year. This is a growth thing. People want to know, well, at age, I want a life plan, and I need a coach. And by age 20, I'm going to be doing this. And age 25, I'm going to do this. And 35, do this. 45, 65. And they just have their whole life mapped out because they don't want an empty life. They want a life 
that means something. Well, what if I told you that the very best version of your life, most fulfilling, that version of your life, the narrative, the story of your life that, that has all of the most remarkable things all caught up together, and, and, and you don't want to miss it. If I told you that I could put that in a book and hand you that book, would you want it? Well, sure. Wouldn't you want that? Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 10. Listen to what he says. He's speaking to Christians, people that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He says, for we Christians are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God before ordained that we should walk in them. He says there's a set of good works. Now, we're not saved by works, right? You know that. We're not saved by trying our hardest to be good. We're saved by grace, right? Through faith, not of works. It says here in verse 9, right here. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But after you become a Christian and the Holy Spirit lives in you and God's at work in your life, there's a plan that you were made for, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's a plan that is already in the heart of God for you. It's unique to you. It's individual to you. It already exists. God had this in mind when he saved you. And, and, and it's the best version of your life available to you. And, and it says, these works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that's how, that's how we experience it. The story's written. The story's written. This is not fatalism, because you have a choice here. There's this path, this path, this path, the, uh, the $11 billion path, you know, all that kind of stuff, of the best version of your life that everybody, that you can get for yourself. And then there's the one that God has for you. And says, God says, if you want the very best kind of life that I have in mind for you, here's how you go there. You walk it out. Now, I would like the book. I would like the whole detailed plan, but God doesn't give it out. He keeps it in his heart. And his passion, his desire is that you and I would stay sufficiently related to him that he simply gives us the next step, step by step by step. That's why it's called a walk. And that's how Enoch experienced God. And, and, and that's how he wants you to experience him, is to walk with him in such a way that you experience the best version of your life that's available to you. And so the question becomes, how did how did Enoch do that? How did Enoch sustain a walk with God over 300 years? Some of us, like me, can't sustain it for 30 minutes. You know, it's like squirrel, you know, get distracted and all that kind of stuff. How did he sustain a walk with God for 300 years? Well, what's fascinating in this chapter in Hebrews, and it really is the way the whole Bible is written, is what we discover is that what God's most interested in about you and about me is our faith. That is always his agenda. When I'm in trouble, my agenda is to get out of trouble. God's agenda is, are you going to trust me, Don? And, and that's always his agenda. And the Bible is written around these pivotal moments in individuals' lives where they have the opportunity to trust God and walk with him or shrink back. I call those defining moments. I love these big balloons up here. I don't know who blew them up, but boy, you got a set of lungs. 
And, and I think these are like the big moments in the Scripture. The Bible takes somebody's life, and it sums up their entire life from the viewpoint of heaven in terms of when did they trust God. And it tends to be these really big defining moments. Defining moment, pink ball. Defining moment, big orange ball. Defining moment, big yellow ball. And it takes those and it says, this is the story of Enoch. By faith, he did this or that. Now, what's different about Enoch is that everybody else in, in this chapter did something by faith. And so, by faith, um, Abel offered the better sacrifice. By, by faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Abraham left his family and his homeland. By faith, people did things. Enoch didn't do anything specifically that's captured. His life is, is not summed up in a series of defining moments like everybody else. His life is summed up as a whole series of a lifetime of moments, like these little balloons. And he stands for us in this chapter as testimony that this doesn't have to be just three or four moments in your life. This is a way of life. This is a walk. This is something you can have every day. 300 years, day one. I don't know what the turning point was, but day one, he got up. I'm trusting God today, and he walks with God day one. Day two, he does the same thing. Day three, he does the same thing. 300 years. And so the question becomes, how did he do that? How did you sustain this walk? Here, if, if we had one of those things where I could, I could uh, call him up and provide transportation, a place for him to stay, and we got Enoch up here this morning, and I'm going to interview Enoch. Now, I don't know what he would look like, but what, I bet we'd get a lot of social media views if I interviewed Enoch because this guy didn't die. Remember? He just disappeared. And so I'm interviewing a guy that never died, and, and I'm, we're having this conversation, and y'all are going, oh, this is a great talk. This is a great conversation. I'm going to tell my friends about this. We're having this conversation with Enoch. And then if I was going to sum up that conversation and just grab three sound bites from that conversation, that's essentially what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, I'm going to lift the hood for you on Enoch's life. I'm going to help you understand how he sustained a walk with God for 300 years. And, and so, there are these three uh, statements that come to mind. Let's read the text first. Hebrews 11, verse 5. Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken... He was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let me hit pause a second. Father, I ask that you would take your word and that you would completely revolutionize our thinking about your heart for us and the way that you have called us to live our life. We thank you for this dear one, Enoch. We pray you would teach us through him today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he did not see death. That's remarkable right there, isn't it? What's, what's also remarkable is by faith, he didn't do any of that. God did that. 
But it was his faith is the explanation. By means of his faith, God did this because he was a believing guy. And it says before he was taken up that he had this testimony, that he pleased God. So by faith, God took him. By faith, he pleased God. And that really sets us up for the next verse, in verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. So he's saying these two things are inseparable. They're almost two sides of the same coin. That, that without faith, apart from faith, that's what the without means, separated from faith, you can't please God. It, you just can't. And so faith becomes essential, and the two things go together. So, and, and so he, he was taken, so he shouldn't see death. He was not found. That means somebody went looking. <laughs> and, um, and so no one ever could find him because God had taken him. All right. So we're interviewing Enoch. How did you sustain this walk for 300 years? Enoch, how did you escape from an empty life? Enoch, how did you discover this, this relationship with God where you just walked with him, and in, in doing so, you walked out the best version of your life, contrary to everybody else in your generation. Soundbite number one. This is the excerpt from the interview. Number one, I trusted him and gave up relying on me. I trusted him and gave up relying on me. In verse six, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. So, Think with me. If where is his faith? His faith is not in himself. So now we're beginning to understand the dramatic change in Genesis 5. He was living and dying like everybody else. Well, what was everybody else doing? Relying on themselves, trusting themselves, doing their own thing. You know, this is the essence of sin. Is, is just trusting myself. I don't need some God telling me what to do. He says, don't eat of that tree in the garden. I don't need any God. I, I can decide for myself what's best for me. And, and so we, we see this in the word faith that at some point in Enoch's life, he said, you know, these people who are trusting in themselves, they're making a big mistake. I'm going to trust God, and I stopped relying on me. God was the one that was going to give me the best life. He was the one that was going to guide me step by step. He was the one that was going to give me direction. Now, this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell his generation of Christians. Don't shrink back. Don't be a person who just dallies with faith. Go all the way. Walk with God. Don't trust him. Endure. When it gets hard, say, I'm going to trust you, God, no matter what. And so, he tells us some dramatic examples of complete failure of the people of God. Uh, one of them he alludes to in chapters 3 and 4, and the story is told in Numbers 13 and 14. And it's a story of the people of God who had been delivered from the mightiest nation on earth, from Pharaoh and from Egypt. And they follow him to the Red Sea, and you know the story, he divides the Red Sea he leads the people across. The armies of Pharaoh chase them. The seas come in, and powerfully, this whole mighty military force is destroyed. They keep following, and they go to the mountain of God, and they see the fire and the smoke, and they hear the voice of God, and they're so terrified. 
And Moses goes up there and receives the Ten Commandments and receives the law of God, and they begin to understand that this God wants to dwell with them. He wants to be with them. He wants to lead them, pillar of fire by, by night, pillar of cloud by day. And he says, if I'm going to dwell among you, you're going to have to live differently. And so he gives them the laws, the rules of how they're supposed to live. And, and so they get that. And all the way, all the way, they have these opportunities to trust the Lord. And each time they have an opportunity to trust the Lord, they whine. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, did you bring us out here to die? Oh, God, it would have been better if we stayed in Egypt. I'd rather have been a slave than out here dying in the sand. You know, well, I'm thirsty. I don't have anything. I mean, wham, wham, wham. Somebody call it wambulance. You know, I mean, just the whole time. But you know what those were? Those were opportunities, the little daily things, to trust God. And they failed. And when they got to the big moment, they came right up to the border of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They send out spies. With God's blessing, they sent out 12 spies, one representing each of the tribes, to just survey how wonderful this promised land is. And they discover it is a land flowing with milk and honey. But when those 10 spies came back, the majority report, what did they say? Oh, there's giants in the land. They're going to whoop up on us. We can't go in there. And they were afraid. They were frightened. And, and the people got, they caught that anxiety. And, and dear one, that's the danger of self-reliance. That's the danger of not trusting God is because suddenly now your problems are even bigger than they seem before. It just magnifies the problem and minimizes God. Two spies came back, Caleb and Joshua, and they said, listen, we can do this. All we need to do is trust God. All we got to do is trust God and we can go in and we can do this. He has promised it to us. We need to go into it. Of course, you know the story. They didn't do it. They shrank back. And that generation that refused to trust God, what happened to them? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Every single one of them died in the wilderness, having missed the greatest narrative or version or story of their life available to them, entry into the promised land. They missed it, it was theirs. They could have had it. God said, this is yours. Trust me. They wouldn't trust him. And they missed God, and they missed the best version of their life. I don't know how that squares with your theology, but that's what the writer of Hebrews is teaching. God loved them. They were still the people of God. They still had the promises given to the forefathers. They were fed six times a day as manna fell from heaven. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. God defeated their enemies every step of that 40-year journey, but they missed the greatest thing God had for them because they wouldn't trust God. Now, that's an awesome warning, isn't it? And I believe that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You can be a Christian. You can love the Lord, but listen, you can still live in the flesh. You can still live like life depends on you and your abilities and your, your best efforts and your talents. I talk to pastors all the time. You know how many times a week I say to a pastor, brother, it does not all depend on you. They're carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, and I look at them and I say, dear one, God did not call you to do this in your own strength. Jesus said to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That word weary means to work yourself to exhaustion. 
Heavy laden means to the burden of all the stuff that people put on top of you in terms of expectations. And Jesus says, if that's your approach to life, if that's your approach to ministry, and you're tired of it, you can come to me and I'll give you rest. But you can't keep that way of life and come to me. They don't coexist. It's either all on him or it's on you. And I can tell you right now, it's no fun living like it's all on you. Jesus didn't save you so you could just try harder. I forgot where I was. All right. I trusted him and he gave up relying on me. That was the soundbite. And so we mentioned Kadesh Barnea. In um, years ago, 1983, my wife and I, fresh out of school, we had applied for mission service with our home mission board, our North American mission board today. And we had applied with our foreign mission board, but they turned us down. We'd been married less than a year. That was probably a good idea. But we applied to our home mission board, discovered they would take anybody. And so they were going to send us to Southern California, Beverly Hills, California, to serve with a man who became a father in the Lord to me. And I learned so much from him about how to walk with God and walk by faith. I might have missed it. Because the summer before we left to go to California, I was working for a church, they wanted me to stay, and we were having a great experience there, and we were seeing God work in powerful ways. And they offered us a comfortable living and a comfortable job in the Deep South. And I got a letter from the whole mission board saying they were gonna pay us $900 a month to live in Southern California. Listen, you can't do that today, you definitely couldn't do it then. Our apartment took up most of that. And so I didn't know what to do. I had not yet learned to hear God. And dear one, we need to grow in our capacity. It's cultivated. We need to learn to walk with God and recognize his voice. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. God speaks. But I hadn't learned to do that. And so I'm trusting and trying to sort things out and I'm waiting on the Lord and I'm reading scripture. And my wife and I are praying together and I got a phone call. Dear brother I'd gone to school with, his name was Mark. He's with the Lord now. He called me up and he said, Don, Lord told me to call you. He said, he said, I know that you're praying about going to California. He said, I just want you to know that the Lord told me you can trust him. I said, the Lord told you I can trust him? He said, yeah. He said, I just want you to know, me and Tammy, by experience, we have, we have learned that you can trust God, that he can supply to you everything you need if you'll trust him. He's never going to lead you, Don, where he's not going to provide I got off the call and I talked to my wife. We prayed further and we chose to trust the Lord. And over the next four years, I watched the Lord take that $900 every single month and make it work. He supplied funds. We never knew where it was coming from, from one month to the next. But God was never late. We had our first two girls out there. Our expenses went up. I have six kids now, but we had our first two out there. Our, our needs went up. So did his provision. God is faithful. God is faithful. So the first soundbite is this. I trusted him and gave up relying on me. Whatever was going on with Enoch, he realized that, hey, everybody else is trusting in themselves. How's that working out for you? I'm going to trust the Lord. Second soundbite. I went looking for him in every moment. I went looking for him in every 
moment. When we look at what happens next in verse 6, it says, Without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And you see two words there, draw near to God. Whoever would do this, draw near to God, and, and he rewards those who seek him. Two things are going on there. That word for drawing near is used elsewhere in Hebrews. It's used in chapter 4 to boldly draw near the throne. It's used in chapter 7 uh, in terms of drawing near to God. It's used in chapter 10 in terms of drawing near to God. And here it is again, chapter 11. I think it's a theme. And so drawing near simply means that there's a point at which I'm not near to God. And, and through some effort, some application in my soul, my heart, I draw near to God. Because God's already in both places, <laughs> in the places where I don't think I'm close to him and the places where I am close to him. But drawing near means I am coming to him. And, and the second word that he rewards those who seek him, it's not just to kind of do a casual search. It's an in-depth search. It's seeking out something. It's finding out where he is, who he is, what he's about, and what he wants. It's like an investigation. And both of these words are in the present tense, meaning they keep coming and keep coming and he keeps coming and he keeps coming and he keeps coming. That's how I did it for 300 years. He got up day one. Where's God? I want to be alert to God. What are you up to, the Lord? And, and, and he's looking for God. He's looking for what the Lord's leading him to do. He's looking for what God is doing. And, and on day two, he gets up. Where is he? I want to be alert to him. I want to be sensitive to him. And he gets up on day two. Every day for 300 years, every moment, this dear brother is living like that. And God has called us to walk with him and be that person that is alert to him. You can't do that in your strength, but he is gracious. I was, uh, Gail and I visited some friends <clears throat> last summer before we came here in another state, and they're, they're friends. We've known them a long time. Our kids sort of grew up together at different points. And when we sat down and had dinner with them, they start sharing about some things going on in their family, and their young, your, your young son is just kind of going off the rails emotionally and spiritually, and they're just having all kinds of trouble with him. I mean, awful trouble. If I could give you the details, it would curl your hair. I mean, just awful. And we loved on them, prayed with them, and then, I don't know, it was a few months later, actually about four or five months later, I was driving down the road. I do a lot of that, driving to different churches. I'm driving down the road, and suddenly my friend, I'm going to call him Jack, comes to mind. And I think about Jack, and, I, and a smile comes to my face because we've had so much fun together as friends. He's, he's goofy. He's just, he's a funny guy. And I'm thinking about him, smiling, and I think about his son. And he just comes to mind. I start praying. I say, oh, God, would you bless us, this, this boy with a sense of who you are? Would you just draw him to yourself? And then I go, whoa. And, and this happens to us. I hope you understand what I'm about to describe. But I realize, you know, God brought him to mind. I had no particular reason to be thinking about him. I'm driving down the road, and God brings Jack and his son to mind. So what do I do? I know what that means. I, I wasn't born yesterday. I, I hit my phone. I call up Jack. Jack answers the phone says, hey, Don. I said, Jack, I just want you to know God brought you to mind, and I love you, brother. How's your son? 
And he said, did my mother call you? She's a friend too. I said, no, I haven't talked to you, mother. He said, well, my son's run away. And it just happened. And we don't know where he is. And we're worried about him. And, and his heart was breaking, just the heart of a dad. He was just devastated by what's taking place. And so I said, Jack, I'm so sorry this is happening. I said, buddy, let's, let's just take this to the Lord, okay? And so right there on the phone, going down to the freeway, I said, oh, God, you know where Jack's son is. You know where he is right now. And I ask you, God, to touch his heart. I pray you put in his heart a desire to come home. You bring that boy home, and you would protect him as you do. And he came home within a few days. But dear one, I am not bright enough to know that that was when I needed to call Jack. All I did was do what I normally do on a day-to-day basis and seek to be alert to what God is doing in my life and what he's saying and what he's prompting and how he's directing and how he's leading and how he's guiding. You may not realize it, but if you're a Christian today, you are a supernatural creature. You have access to an unseen dimension that radically affects the world that you and I see. We're taught to pray. What are you praying to? If it's not an unseen God of majesty who has complete authority and power over the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. God in the world that I can't see as it is in heaven, I'm asking you to come and rule on earth the way that you rule in heaven. I mean, there's this this opportunity you and I have to walk with this wonderful, incredible God who made you for this magnificent story if we will trust him. And so Enoch just remained alert to God. He just remained alert, and he trusted the Lord. Um, One other example, I traveled for years with the Arkansas Baptist State Convention as a consultant type person. And I stayed in different hotels. And those of you who may travel, you know, sometimes if, if you're a Christian, you get tempted to watch things on TV, your wife won't let you watch at home. And really, you shouldn't watch it anyway. And, um, and so my typical response for years was I would just call her up, say, yeah, I'm being tempted to watch something I shouldn't. And I would just suck all the life out of temptation. You know, when you expose darkness to light, the dark things don't like it. And so I walked into this one particular hotel room in a small town that thought it was a tourist attraction, but most people just kept driving. And I walked into this small little flea-bitten hotel, and I opened the door, and I looked at it, and there, there was my hotel room. Two double beds to the right, little end table in between, little round table with a chair over here, a long TV stand, a little TV on it, and a, and a bathroom and a threadbare carpet. And it wasn't the worst place I'd been. I'd seen worse, but it was close. And I walked in. I set my bags down because at that moment, I just felt like I'd walked into something very, very dark. And I just sort of stood there for a moment. I wasn't comfortable being there. I almost thought about moving, changing rooms. And the Lord spoke to my heart. He said, Don, you don't know all the things that have happened here, but I do, and they're still here. And the Lord was alerting to me something that I was finally beginning to realize was that I experienced temptation more greatly in some places than I did in others. In a hotel room like that, I had no idea the hundreds and hundreds of people that had stayed there before me. 
a man cheating on his wife, a woman being abused, a young man tired of living with an addiction, a child being molested. I don't know what all went there, but it was dark. It was bad. And I was reminded again that we live in a world where there's an unseen dimension, and part of it is evil. We are in the midst of a spiritual warfare, a battle for your faith. One group wants to destroy your faith and distract you from simple devotion to Jesus, and of course, God wants to draw you to himself. And you say, well, you really believe demons could hang out in the hotel rooms? I think they hang out in a lot of places. When Jesus was getting ready to cast the demons out of the Gadarene demoniac in Mark, I think it's Mark 5, they, they begged him, don't make us leave this country. They wanted to stay in that country, that hotel room. They wanted to stay there. And that, of course, the Lord Jesus told them to get out, and they got into this bunch of pigs, a herd of pigs, and they ran down a mountain and drowned themselves. Some people think what we call demon, demonization is just a psychiatric condition. Well, if it is a psychiatric condition, it's one that pigs can catch, <laughs> according to Jesus. It is so important that we just tune our hearts to the heart of God. And that's why your morning time is important. You may not spend hours in the Word. I'm not suggesting you do that. But it's important to start the day. And I get up in the morning, a lot of times in twilight, I'm already talking to the Lord. I get up in the middle of the night. I'm older now. I get up a lot. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. God help me, I'm going to be at Southbridge tomorrow. <laughs> you know, and I'm just talking to him, that inner conversation. And the Lord wants us to make sure that we start our day like that, and read his word, yes, pray, yes, but most of all, you're just setting the table for the rest of the day. And that's what Enoch did every day. Well, the last soundbite is this. I knew he would give himself to me. It's just the way he is. And when I look at the scripture, it says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So here you are drawing near, seeking him, seeking to be alert to him. But he's saying, if you live like that, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to visit with you. You're going to sense my presence at times. And my presence is going to convey to you things that we can't even describe humanly, but I'm going to convey some things to you by my very presence. I'm coming. He says that if you're the one that's drawing near, that he rewards those who seek him. That word reward is the only place that particular word in the Greek is used in the New Testament. It means a paymaster. End of a day, you go, and they're the ones that pay out what you're owed. And what he's saying is, if you're, if you're drawing near all the time, if you're seeking me all the time in each moment, I'm going to pay up. If you're seeking me and I'm the rewarder, what's the reward? Him. He's the reward. We live in an age, I think, that is absolutely starving for spiritual reality. People want to see a supernatural Christian. <laughs> they want to see a church 
that, that is vibrant with the presence of God. People want that. They don't want to see another organizational success. They want to see a place where they go and they sense the very presence of God. And he says, if you're seeking me and seeking me, church, and seeking me as an individual, I'm coming to you. I will reward you with myself. And that'll change everything. That's what Enoch did. He just kept seeking God, kept seeking God, kept seeking God. And God would come and walk with him until the very end, and he was taken. He was taken. There was a moment in our lives 20-something years ago where I was out of work. I had been let go from a church. The story was that it was for financial reasons. The truth was it was a toxic pastor. Now, you have a good pastor, but this guy was toxic. And I know that because a year after I left, he was caught in adultery with a deacon's wife. He's bad news. Bad news. But he didn't like me. We didn't, we didn't get along too well. Actually, we got along great. It wasn't my problem. I was great. I'm a nice guy. What's not to like? And he tried to force me to resign quietly, and I wouldn't do it. So I got, I got fired and given three months severance. I have a real heart for pastors that go through nonsense like that. And so I have a wife at home. I have six kids at home. We sit at the dinner table, and they're all looking at me. Do you hear anything today, Dad? Is anything happening? And I felt this anxiety in my heart. Oh, God, I got these six kids to take care of. It's all on me. <laughs> I felt that. How am I going to pay my bills? How are we going to do this? It's like sitting on the tracks, and the train is coming. The money is going to run out. How are we going to do this, Lord? And I knew that I had to be in a different place from where I was because I was feeling that sense of self-reliance. And when you are thinking it's all on you, the only way you can look at the future is with fear because you know you don't have what it takes. And so here's what I did. In our house, once the kids get up, there's no quiet place left in the house. Now, they're all grown, but when they were little, there was no quiet place. And, and so I would get up early, and I would go out to our family minivan, Dodge Caravan, don't buy one. It was bad. <laughs> I would go out there with a flashlight, my Bible, and a journal, and I would sit there, and I would begin to talk to the Lord, and I would cry out to him, and I would pour out all my heart to him, and I would do what Peter says. I would cast all my care on him because he cares for me. And, and my objective was simply this. I need to know, God, that you are, you are there and you are in charge and you are in control. And dear one, every day for four months, he came and met with me. And when he, when he stepped into the van, peace. Peace. No fear no anxiety. I stayed there until my problems didn't fill my windshield, but God filled my windshield with my heart. And I would read about who he was, and I read about what he's done in the past and know that he doesn't change from one day to the next. So this is who he is today. And I would just stay there until God spoke to my heart, assured my heart, I got you, and I got these circumstances, and I'm going to take care of you. Now, what's the value of that? The value of that is whether it was 30 minutes or three hours, and sometimes it took that long, I could then go into my house, look into my wife's eyes, take her hands and say, sweetheart, it's going to be okay. I could sit down with those kids at the table and I would say, kids, 
It's going to be all right. God's got this. He's got this. So the Lord has before us today the opportunity for each of us to get in on the best story of your life. Do you want it? Enoch said, you've got to stop trusting yourself. God's the only one you can trust. He's the only one that's going to tell you the truth about your circumstances. He's the only one that's going to tell you the truth about you. Trust him. It's not all on you. Trust him. And then he says, be alert to God. Just be sensitive. Things come to mind. They may not be an accident. Your mind may not be wandering. It may be directed. Be alert to what God's doing around you. Cultivate a sensitivity to his voice, whether you're reading his word or driving down the road. And then he says, seek him, dear one, seek him. Hit pause in your life on a regular basis and seek him and say, oh God, I need you. I need you. Come to me. Come to me. What happened in that minivan happens most days now. Because the objective of my time alone with the Lord is to be with the Lord not just read my Bible and check off something. He loves you. You're his. You belong to him. And he wants you to enter into this wonderful story. Let me ask you to bow your heads, please, and to close your eyes. We enter in the story first by becoming followers of Jesus Christ, becoming a Christian. Today, to be a Christian, you need to know is a very definite thing. Just because you're born in America doesn't make you a Christian. A person becomes a Christian by a very definite choice, a very definite action in response to the good news, the gospel. Jesus came into this world on a rescue mission for your soul. He came to battle all the enemies of your soul, and he defeated them. On the cross, he died for your sins, took the punishment your sins deserved, and he carried them away. I don't care what you've done. You may think, I'm, I'm not good enough to come to a church. I'm not good enough to, to, to be a Christian. Doesn't matter. He's already taken care of your not good enough stuff. And the Bible says to prove your sins were forgiven, he raised Jesus from the dead. The wages of sin is death. Well, Jesus died and he came back. Your sins have been forgiven. And the Bible simply says, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but will have everlasting life. And so the only thing you have to do is to come to a place, recognition, that I've been doing life without God, and it's, it's destroying me, and sin is destroying me, and I, and I choose now to seek the forgiveness of God that's in Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust Jesus to save me. And the Bible says in Romans, Whoever, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's the beginning. That's step one. Have you taken that step? In just a few moments, we're going to have a time of response. If you need to talk to me about trusting Jesus for the first time as your Lord and Savior, letting him come in and change your life, I'll be here at the front. I'll be glad to talk to you. I believe that, that Dave is going to be out here to the, to the side. Afterwards, if you need to talk to him or one of the other pastors, elders, or church leaders here, they'll gladly talk to you. Just grab somebody and say, hey, I want to know how to be saved. <laughs> I want to know how to be a Christian. And take their picture of their face, because I like to see what they do. Anyway, 
You need to trust the Lord. That's the first step. And then if you're a believer, you already belong to Christ. What story are you living in right now? The story like the rest of the world where you just live and die, live and die, live and die. It's all on you. Your future is what you make it. That's a lie. Is that where you're living? I want to challenge you today to get out of that narrative, to just step away from that. And it begins even for a Christian the same way as it begins for a non-Christian. You've got to start trusting the Lord and stop trusting yourself. That's a starting point. Say, God, I just surrender to you. My life, my time, my direction, my purpose, my, my gifts, my money, my family, everything I've got, Lord, I just give it to you. And I want to walk with you the rest of my days. That choice is yours. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this dear man, Enoch. And what a lovely story, example he is to us. I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here that you would use this to encourage them as individuals and as a church to look for what you are doing in their lives, to look for opportunities to trust you with these new circumstances that come that we don't expect to trust you with their daily needs, to trust you with their daily life, to walk with you. We pray, Father, that because we have been here together today that someone's life will be changed for eternity. And so, Holy Spirit, come. We welcome you here. We ask that you would take the truth of your word and apply it to our hearts now in these moments. And we ask this in the strong and wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.